So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Rimsky. I'm Julian Walker. As always, you can stay up to date with us on all of our social media handles. Collectively, we are on Instagram. Individually, we are on Twitter. I think we still have a Facebook page where Julian puts some stuff up once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support us and keep us editorially independent, as well as access our Monday bonus episodes, which I believe we have some things going on, right guys? We do. I think our Patreon material has been rocking recently. We want to um, give a huge shout out to Christina Flinders, uh, who offered her hard one life wisdom up on our inaugural listener stories episode. So good. Um, so good. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Now, and coming up, we'll be actually talking to another listener. Um, they'll be telling us about the chaos of growing up with a parent who was caught up in a satanic panic. Uh, story. Uh, we'll be talking to, to them about their childhood. Also, we'll be featuring something extremely rare, which is a positive story of a neo-Hindu spiritual mentorship. This is very off-brand, Matthew, very off-brand. <laughs> well, I think we should do something like it, though, because uh, these stories do happen. This goes back to the 1980s, back when everything was uh, open with both possibility and precarity. Uh, but we're also not done with the Swan Song series yet, are we, Julian? So I really want to interject here to say that the Swan Song series, you know, which we've been doing for quite a while now, it's really turned into a pretty substantive cultural project. I mean, we've been digging into the history of the satanic panic in which American parents were terrified by serious news outlets and law enforcement organizations in the in the 80s and 90s into believing that Satanists were prowling suburban neighborhoods in search of innocent kitties to sacrifice, right? right. Mm-hmm. But we've looked into how this links back, and you've done a lot of great work on this, Matthew, to the reaction crisis around liberalization that was happening in the 1970s Catholic Church. And and that then influenced a whole genre of hugely successful and scary horror movies about demonic possession and exorcism. And that, of course, also links directly into what we know today 
as QAnon. Indeed. Oh, and Teal Swan's therapist, as it turns out, was also a notorious and, of course, since discredited key player in this satanic panic phenomenon. That's, of course, the same therapist with whom Teal recovered the truly gruesome and fantastical satanic ritual abuse memories that launched her career as a magical wounded healer. And so now we turn to a different kind of movie. This is one set in the late 1960s, Girl Interrupted, which as it turns out, this played a formative role in Teal Swan's adolescence, apparently. It's about young women and friendship and mental illness. Now, whether you've seen it before or not, because I just watched it for a second time, dear listeners, you have homework. Go watch Winona Ryder and Angelina Jolie, who won her Oscar for this performance in 1999's Girl Interrupted. We'll see you bright and early Monday to break it all down. We will. Conspirituality 123, timeline retox. You know, biohacking and fascism and stuff. Yeah, uh, we're back together, Hi. gentlemen. And uh, we're, we're catching up on some recent events. Uh, we're doing this as a way of previewing the reinstitution of This Week in Conspirituality, which will start up again next week. Uh, but we should probably open with a note about why we migrated away from This Week in Conspirituality. I mean, at least I'll say something, which is that um, we've been working on this book. We have the final, final filing coming up on Monday. And I think when working on a book... It just works to unplug. Uh, you know, Twitter is very useful and, you know, fun, and the threads can build a kind of argument and help us, you know, sort of generate discourse and, and, and we can learn. Um, they can gesture at chapter writing, but you can't produce chapter level writing when you're plugged in, at least in my opinion. Uh, you know, chapter level writing has to be ambivalent. It has to seek balance. Um, you know, it needs counterweight, counterexamples. We have to create some sort of rhythm between data and human stories. And as we have learned over and over and over again with the people that we study and from guests like T. Nguyen, um, you know, online discourse really forces you into the corner where you have to find and pitch and then stand by you know, the stickiest ideas only. And, you know, those tend towards ideological narrowness and flatness. Um, and also, I don't know about you guys, but I started to find that the mental health drag of the news cycle to be really intense. Um, because in most cases, the themes that we covered, uh, the antics of the influencers we've followed, um, none of that stuff changes. Uh, it generally accelerates. Uh, it gets stupider. Um, and, you know, I think if you're following conspirituality influencers, you're following people who are creating an alternate reality. And so you know that whatever actually happens in the material world will be instantly converted into their contrarian content. And and what I found was that the lag time between being able to absorb um, like real world events and how that process felt and then predicting and then usually being right about how someone is going to frame the war in Ukraine or the rise of a fascist leader in Italy, you know, that time just gets shorter. And I can only just take that 
for so long. What about you guys? You're right in that the book takes a lot out of you. We've individually all written books and it's quite a process. It's a it's an emotional process because when you're doing it by yourself, you're sitting with a screen trying to figure out what you want to say and then get it down. But collectively, you know, I've always said people hear us for 75, 90 minutes a week plus our bonuses, but we talk every day. And that hasn't changed. We're on Slack all the time working on these projects. And the book was between us and then having two sets of editors for our different publishers. Uh, it was, it was quite, you know, which is wonderful. And I, I'm personally really happy with what we've produced and I look forward to getting it out into the world. But also what you just said references to where we're going in terms of how is conspirituality evolving? Like we started this project, it doesn't end because the pandemic is quote unquote over. It's not. But besides that, these influencers have to continue to market. And that's what we're going to be looking at a bunch today is some of the ways that it's evolving. And I feel like at least for myself, moving forward is these few months of working on the book and then looking at the landscape has really helped me to focus more on my individual contributions to this project, which have to do with, first of all, health and science and supplements. And I'm going to be pursuing a lot of those stories every week on this week in conspirituality. But also, I do work full-time in finance. And I have this behavioral economics cognitive bias world that I work in, which completely fits with the conspiritualists. So I'm going to be able to bring a lot more of that information into how they're producing their products and their downlines and all of that. And I feel very good about being able to analyze it uh, through the lens of both their charismatic affect that they have, but also looking at the real financial consequences of how they're moving through these spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that, you know, in writing the book, it's almost like stepping back and saying, looking at all the data that we've gathered, looking at everything that's happened over the last couple of years, um, especially the intensity of 2020, everything leading up to the election, then the fucking capital insurrection, um, the pandemic, the vaccines, right? All of it. And there was just so much to, to parse out. And then part of the book too is kind of going back into history and saying, what are the threads that kind of lead to the situation that we found ourselves reporting on in real time? And so I think all of that made us sort of step back a little bit from the intensity of the news cycle. And I agree with what you're saying about, you know, social media and its its uh, its usefulness and also its distracting quality. I almost feel like we're at a turning point right now where we're starting to say, okay, where are we at in 2022 in terms of this phenomenon? How is it continuing to evolve? And what do we see in terms of uh, a potential future and how, you know, how all of this kind of hangs together? I can say on the mental health front that um, things have become a lot easier since I began to undertake a little bit more self-care. For oh, that's good, Matthew. Emotions. That's good, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, I'm really glad that I found Will Blunderfield um, uh-huh. who's a fellow, fellow Canadian from Vancouver. Um, he practice, he's a musician. Uh, he practices sexual Kung Fu for men. Uh, he does butthole sunning. He's really plunged deeply into the timeless teachings of Montauk <laughs> Chia, who has uh, taught all about the Tao of semen retention. Very helpful. Uh, so I signed up for all his content, his OnlyFans. I bought the oils. Uh, he's got me doing yoga again. 
Uh, and so I've got a nice, I got a nice clip here for you. It's a little vulnerable. Uh, it's not safe for work. So maybe listeners, you can pause here and switch over to earbuds. What's up, Yogi? So me and Brian Crew just taught a really juicy anus workshop today and got a little bit into the prostate too. And that caused some pre-cum to be secreted from my manhood. So a little bit of sperm seep a little bit of testosterone, a little bit of uh, spermidine, which is good for muscle growth, a little bit of nerve growth factor, which is really good for your brain and your uh, nervous system. What else came out? A little bit of vitamins, minerals, oxytocin, and bonding hormone, which uh, lowers cortisol. So not only am I getting the benefit of the urine therapy, which is powerful on its own, the shivambu, I should call it, uh, but I'm also getting the benefit of the sperm, the semen, tiny bit of semen that's been mixed in with my urine. Wow. Wow, this guy has a whole vitamin factory oh, up his ass. Wow, that's very, very potent. I love this. <laughs> yeah, you just broke in on his oh, uh, tasting, actually. Uh, yeah, Joanne. no, he was. I think you missed the gargoyle oh, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, to get the, I mean, he, he's amazing. He's really a master. Like, I can't do all of that stuff. But I want to just, you know, communicate some of the full vibe here. Um, I pulled a montage of men's workshop material. It also features Will uh, doing a little bit of Leonard Cohen. My balls produce massive amounts of testosterone. My balls produce massive amounts of testosterone. My testicles attract girls from all over the world. My testicle attract humans from all around the world. Some people are like, well, you're saying that, you know, you should love yourself as you are. Why are you encouraging guys to grow their cocks? But I'm just saying, let your cock and your balls fully exist in the form that they're meant to exist in beyond the poisoning. It's not a cry that you hear at night. Oh, it's not someone who claims to have seen the light. It's a call and it's a broken So me and my buddy Brian did a new moon ejaculation ritual. We wrote what we wanted to let go of and we ejaculated onto it. So it was actually very powerful. And then we let it dry. That's his. His is a bit more intense. Hallelujah. Yeah, uh, you so he's Jeff like, Buckley there. You lied to us. Well, it's, it's a, not Jeff. Leonard Cohen wrote that song. No, but that's Jeff Buckley's version. No. That's him. <laughs> well, I know. I know that. Uh, oh. <laughs> anyway, he's a great singer. I mean, that's his background, actually. There's a lot of old yoga music up on his YouTube channel. Very poppy George Michael type ballads with adorably bad Sanskrit. Oh, Will. Anyway, um, a lot going on here, guys. Uh, what do you think? Is is this a bit? Is it harmless? I mean, the first time I saw it, I was just like, holy shit, this is the apocalypse is upon us. Like, this is the what this is just the next step beyond anything I've ever seen. And the more I sat with it, the more I was like, it's got to be it's got to be a parody. I don't know. So, you know, in your notes, Matthew, you didn't get to the question, but what is workshop sell out in Austin or would it be picketed? I actually think that's a really good question because he does cross over into wellness territory, but I think he might go a little too far for people. And there are some photos of him standing around with five other guys all naked. And right, I feel right, like right. you're not yeah. going to get into the on it gym. Like there's only so much you can push on those buttons, but you're not going to get into the gym if you're around other guys jacking off for whatever reason. You're making it sexual, aren't you? You're 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 making it sexual. I think that anyone looking at it from the outside would make it <laughs> 
asexual in some capacity, uh, especially especially if you if you have as much of an ego as the Austin crew does, because there are limits there that you can you can only push so far on certain themes. It still will come down to like the warrior mentality and the vulnerability that you have to have to stand in a room with a bunch of other naked men jerking off. Is I couldn't imagine that. Like a, it's not anything I aspire to do. But besides that, the amount of vulnerable, the, the <laughs> try harder, you have, Derek, try harder. <laughs> you can imagine it. <laughs> so, so I, as I was saying, I want to agree with you because the first time I saw it, I thought it was parody. And if you look back at his career, he's a performance artist. Yeah. So yeah. it could be in there, but you know, we were saying before we started recording, where does parody cross over when you start getting eyeballs on you? Like it could start off as parody and then you're like, I mean, look at JP Sears, right? Oh, you're listening to me. Oh, these are the people that listen to me. Okay, let me start tailoring my message to them. So it's it, that, you know, it goes back to that question we're always ask, the, asking on this podcast, the question of intent. And it's really hard, especially in this case, it's really hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, there's also the question of what does a person do if, you know, in 2012, they're in their early 20s and they're trying to make it as a musician and they do a little bit of circus performance work and then they get into yoga teaching and then they start to age out of that perhaps and then the and then the um and then online platforms become live uh and then he finds out that there's actually a a market niche for seminal retention workshops and he's always kind of been into that anyway and it's it's kind of like what like what do people do if they didn't get the nine to five job or if they didn't, you know, if they didn't sort of slide out of the, the influence gig worker economy. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the truth is there are plenty of people, uh, and some of them are conspiritualists who are into this whole urine therapy kind of thing and, and who are into using various, you know, pseudoscience claims for all of the benefits of urine therapy. So it's, it's a step beyond, but it's not, it's not way out beyond what already exists, right? No, and and he actually might have found something lucrative in as far as the near future goes, because you know the yoga wellness dick care gig uh, is going to be dealing with a wave of uh, erectile dysfunction amongst sufferers of long COVID. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that starts entering into his marketing as well, but. You know, I, I just want a, a note here, full disclosure that that you know a lot of listeners will know that the three of us have never met in person. Um, I had lunch with Julian once about ten years ago. It was I've great. never actually I've never actually met Derek in person, uh, and we're going to post links to Blunderfield in the show notes, and you can see for yourself. Why I'm starting to wonder uh, whether Derek and Will might be the same guy. You found uh, me out, and, right? <laughs> and whether this whether this whole podcast has been elaborate an elaborate catfish to draw me in. And why are you so my, Why are you so anti right? bald guys with beards? <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just like you know? I'm just connecting. I'm just connecting the big bald dots. That's you think all. we all look alike? <laughs> right. Well, I, I have to say, it is undeniable that the two of you have never been seen in the same place at the <laughs> that, same that time. That is true. I, I, I will say that. How else true. do you explain it, Derek? <laughs> we do have serious stuff to talk about uh, today. Julian, you've got uh, a long piece on how conspiritualists uh, gel with the rise 
of global fascism. I'm going to be looking at Giorgio Malone uh, and a little bit on uh, Pierre Polyev. But first, Eric, you're going to bring us on a tour of a biohacking conference. Is that right? Yeah, two different ones, actually. Um, so, you know, as, as I mentioned a little earlier, the question came up once COVID was quote unquote over and you know, where, where would this go? How would they shift? So overall, I feel it's important to track where the figures that we've been covering, where their messaging is now, but also look at to where it's going to evolve, as I hinted at earlier. And, you know, the immune system was all the rage during COVID. And I think we all expected that wouldn't last. You know, Mickey Willis pumped pimped his supplements, helping you prepare for the next pandemic. There was that moment. Uh, but supplements will always be circulating somewhere. Uh, so I do want to look at two conferences that occurred in just the last two weeks, as they're really indicative in my mind of where this is all headed. And to be honest, it's really just picking up where the wellness industry was when lockdowns began, which is this intensive focus on optimization. And I know I've been threatening a Dave Asprey episode for a while. And honestly, I do want to do one. He's just really hard to listen to. Uh, so, you know, he said mental health before. I can't do more than one clip of him. But his eighth annual biohacking conference recently went down in Beverly Hills at the Beverly Hills Hilton, which is a very nice hotel there. Uh, and the following week, he was the keynote speaker at the Modern Nirvana Conference in yeah, Austin, of course. And as can be expected, both of these conferences featured an array of junk science and grifting to levels that astounded even me when I was on their Instagram feeds. Um, so first off, do you guys know how much a ticket to the biohacking conference was? I think that question is actually upside down. The question is, how much is it worth to the individual to go to the biohacking conference. Can you afford only... not to go? <laughs> How much will it cost right. you if you don't spend the $777.77? Nice guess. What's your guess, Matthew? Oh, I don't know. Uh, is it 600 bucks? General admission was $1,799. Oh. Oh, oh, fucking, uh, fucking hell. What, three days? <laughs> three days, yeah. Preferred admission was... 3000 and the VIP was 4300 or 4299 because he knows this is Is this just, this just people like setting up tables in a conference center and, and then, then people lecturing yeah. in yeah, rooms? Exactly. Now, hold on. This doesn't include accommodations, meals. No, no, no. Well, I don't know. There, there are probably some fucking <laughs> pills that they gave yeah. you there, but no, not Donuts. accommodations. Not accommodations. No, that was just uh -huh. for the tickets of the conference. So, second question what, what topics were they talking about? You want to take a guess? Uh, geez, I mean, probably but butthole sunning with uh, with with. It's not techy enough. It's not techy enough. No, well, maybe no, Will is not in this league. <laughs> Will Blunderfield is not at that. Conference. But Dave Asprey does sun butthole suntan. Like he's posted that he does that. Oh, so yes, yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, then I'm, I'm going to take him seriously. Maybe there's some kind of uh, bulletproof coffee enema that you can do. Close, close, close. So, close. so I'm not maybe gonna... it's calibrated with some kind of AI. No, no. So bulletproof coffee was so 2017. We've evolved, Julian. Okay. So stay, but I'm All not right. going to do a full rundown, but at, 
Asprey's conference, there was cold plunges, of course, cryotherapy, which has never been proven, uh, stem cell therapy, which has been proven for certain things, but not what they're promoting it for, new states of consciousness. Ah. So there's, there's all new things happening right now. But my personal favorite, as you hinted at, was Asprey's latest coffee innovation, which is called Danger Coffee, <laughs> <laughs> which is marketing as clean, mold-free, farm-direct coffee engineered to detoxify and remineralize the body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. Coffee. Coffee mold is bullshit. Like That was his first book. One of the big things that brought him into notoriety is this idea. He said over 90% of the world's coffee supply is moldy, right? But he's never his. his beans. Never his beans. So- that's that's the biohacking conference over at Modern Nirvana. Asprey talked a lot alongside Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. I don't know if you know the, this guy. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. I actually oh, yeah. went to one of his events in 1995, my first year as a religion reporter, and covered it back then. So I, very even then, watching a bunch of white people in Central Jersey touch his feet weirded me out. Even though I was only like 20 at the time. Uh, Sad <laughs> Guru was there, uh, of course. Uh, Luke Story talked with his partner about sacred relationships. Um, and there was a lot of talks about unhealthy guts. And I think the microbiome is probably the most grifted space right now. There's so, as I talked to Daniel Bellardo a few episodes about, there's so little science behind it, but there are so many products behind it right now. Um, and there was also a talk on the spiritual applications of melatonin and methylene blue. Methylene blue. Oh, what's that? Met- oh, methylene blue is, is an old, uh, it was actually used in textile dyes in the late 19th century. <laughs> it has a lot. It, awesome. it, it's it's what you use when you want to like see different applications of of minerals, and it's the it's the dye that you use, the blue dye that you use to see things in. But they also use it to dye textiles, and it was the very first ingredient that f- created different states of consciousness, which then became the tranquilizer industry, which eventually became the antidepressant industry. So it's been so this around is part for, of your origin story. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And so, but now that's a spiritual application. So I really need to find that talk. Right. Um, there was a lecture on your favorite field, Julian, quantum biology and connectedness. I'm the only expert on that topic. I can't believe someone else talks about it. <laughs> so in this whole landscape, Asprey is sort of a godfather energy at this point. He's capitalizing on his buttered coffee empire, but he's also clawing his way up in an attempt to stay relevant. Uh, the modern Nirvana crew is much younger and hipper. They're led by a self-proclaimed biohacker and a guy who is the former backstage interviewer on Dancing with the Stars. His name is Frank Ilarie. <laughs> Uh, probably saying that wrong. I'm sorry, but that's who it is. Um, there's a successful actress and vocalist, Kat Graham. Uh, she streamed, she starred in a bunch of Netflix movies and even Cutthroat City, which was created by Riza from the Wu-Tang. Um, and then there's a breathwork instructor named Bryant Wood who teaches something called Prana Shamanic Yoga. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. You could add a few more words to that. <laughs> well, if you, I'm not including his whole bio. There are many more words. Um, okay. The modern Nirvana, it really is this new young wave of aspirational conspiritualists. And, and I really do put them in that category because in 2021, their conference was mask free and promoted as mask free by them, even mm. though Austin was still under a mask mandate at the time. Um, but they have hipper branding and they come with a soundtrack. I 
just want to ask about that. So, so there's a lot of, I imagine that there's a lot of 2020, 2021 conferences with people like folks like this in places like Austin that had municipal mask mandates. They were mask free. They obviously became, they probably became super spreader events, but all of that data, all of that information, that's going to be lost to history. Like we're just never going to know uh, what the impact was of these gatherings during that time, I suppose, well, right? Yeah, we're not going to know. And the only reason that I know is because one of our listeners, and I'm sorry, I forgot who it was, but they were there because they were interested in the conference, but they were masked and they were emailing or DMing us on social media. And I saw it and I was going back and forth with that person and they were like, I'm getting a lot of dirty looks because I'm wearing a mask, but no one here is masked. And they're talking about like why you, it's bad for you and stuff like that. So that's specifically mm, how right. I know that was that conference. And yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's what we've always said, though. Like, you'll never know the collateral damage of what this movement, the anti-mask, anti-vax movement has done because it's just impossible. If you run into a store because you're protesting and you have COVID and you give it to someone and they bring it home to their grandma, you're never going to know the, how those effects that you had. Um, so back to Modern Nirvana, I want to briefly focus on Kat Graham as her latest music single really points to a disparity in wellness spaces that I personally hoped we would leave behind, but uh, that was really stupid of me to believe. It's, it's the, this personal gloating of riches, uh, which is not surprising <laughs> given that Luke Story and Dave Asprey are in their circle. Um, but this idea that you can transcend your material conditions through this new conglomeration of spiritual practices rooted in biohacking, psychedelic shamanism, and whatever else is trending this month. So before I play this clip, Matthew, would you read Modern Nirvana's marketing copy for me? The goal of Modern Nirvana is to be a catalyst for transformation in people's lives, to inspire them to take control of their spiritual and physical well-being by sharing both ancient practices and modern biohacks on our YouTube channel and at our annual summit. Our mission is to bring inspiration and information to a new generation, paving a way for a more enlightened world. If you are human, you have the potential to be super human and we can help. what if you're not human <laughs> i'm so you know i should have done more prep for this episode because 2021's keynote speaker was deepak chopra and oh, Matthew could have read it in that voice but i blew it I yeah blew it. Um, um, yeah all right so this is the same blase rhetoric promised by every aspirational wellness business and entrepreneur and I'm all for people having multiple careers. I've had a bunch, like it's cool to do a bunch of things. I, I think there's something to be said though for being consistent across your messaging, even if you have disparate careers that come together. So Kat, as I mentioned, is one of the three founders. She's an actress and a wellness entrepreneur and a singer. And her latest single is called Oprah Rich. And you guys are in for a real treat. All right. Look at all my shit. I got cars that you're repeating more often than a museum. 
I love it when I see zeros. I love counting all my doughs. My piggy bank overflows. Sign my name on the dot, let's go. I love it when I see zeros. I love counting all my doughs. My piggy bank overflows. Sign my name on the Go, 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 go,
you know, it's it's like we said, what, what has been happening in the pandemic online is now continuing in real life. You have these collections of grifters moving about in a coordinated fashion, offering <laughs> numerous levels of entry, right? If you can't afford a long weekend in Beverly Hills or Austin, you can buy the fucking Oracle deck and it's, uh, you know, you can pre-order it on their site now. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that Luke's story already has an affiliate code for this because that's how Mm -hmm. these circles (laughs) Mm -hmm. work. We know this from our Hay House episode where we talked about how they all work together. Yeah, as well as all of the great work that uh, CCDH did on the Pandemic Profiteers and how networked they all are from from, uh, RFK to Tom. And Charlene Bollinger and all of them, they're they're Christiane Northrup is in on that action. They're all just heavily networked in this digital marketing uh, methodology. Yeah, and it's returning to real life. And so, from from my perspective, and what I'll be looking at, as I said, in the coming months, is where is this wellness community heading? And first, it's it's in more groups because they really need that cross pollination. Because I do think as disgusting as some of this is, I do think that a lot of people are more skeptical than before having seen what happened. Um, There will be more of a focus on biohacking because there's something very seductive about the idea that you can transform your neurons, even if that statement is meaningless, you see it all the time. And third, the continued confusion between wellness posturing and financial success, which that song points to, which further blurs the lines between this ego-driven salesmanship And a true quest for holism that takes into account that most people don't have the opportunity to partake in the universal truths about success that I covered on Monday's bonus episode, right, that are on offer. This idea that you can pull yourself out by the bootstraps, you do these practices, you will find success in some ways. The the price of entry, as we just saw with the biohacking conference, is way too steep for most people. So it's going to be this continued aspirational model, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Now, just let me slow down and ask a kind of a dumb question, which is, is there anything more to biohacking than rebranding Chopra and Sheldrake for the tech crowd? Yes. Uh, In terms of their accessibility to scientific studies and the ability to take things like, let's go back to stem cell therapy, which does possibly have some applications if you've gone through an injury and they're going to repurpose it as an optimization tool that, hey, maybe your shoulder didn't pop out of its socket and you needed that surgery. But if you do this, you're actually going to prolong your life this much further. They have an access to like science on a consumer level that has never existed before. I think, you know, in some ways, in some ways, no, because Chopra and Sheldrake, for example, I mean, they've been using whatever physics or science was available for, for generations now in their speech and right. their language. Right. But I think on a, on a product level, right? We talked about this with Daniel Bellardo again, about like these take-home microbiome kits that are not regulated. They probably don't do anything but they're just another you know, vehicle that can be sold. I'm going to talk about this next week on This Week in Spirituality about the telehealth industry that is booming right now, or at least a lot of these influencers and quote-unquote anti-vax doctors are spinning up right now. Those, those are more monetization vehicles for them. Um, so yes, that, that connectedness that was always more like, I can see you at a conference because we have social media and we have these ways of connecting now. I think that interconnectivity and access to science 
is gives them something that wasn't accessible before that. Yeah, but maybe they lose something because it just occurs to me that the terms biohacking and optimization are really like super materialist. They're super hard dualists. So I I wanted to know if Mm. you had any thoughts about that, Julian, because they're not talking about... They're not. They're not talking about chakras, are they? No, no. So I mean, the the crossover point you mentioned, uh, Sheldrake and Chopra. The crossover point, of course, is quantum physics, which we've already mentioned, right? The crossover point, that, or, or or the way in which people like Sheldrake and Chopra are deploying their form of pseudoscience is to say, here's a scientific reference point where we mangle quantum physics and then use it to justify a bunch of you know, bullshit philosophical claims that are ultimately about, that are ultimately idealistic. They're ultimately about how thought creates reality. Right. And so when the biohackers come along, it's much less of that kind of spiritual philosophical angle. And I'm going to sell you books and much more about, I'm going to sell you products mm. based on the fact that I, I have tapped into sort of the secrets of the growing edge of science and I can tell you these secrets that will that will optimize everything about you. And, and you get into kind of Cronenberg territory with someone like Tim Ferriss. And Tim Ferriss is kind of the Mac Daddy, I think, of a lot of this stuff. Where Tim Ferriss was doing things 10 years ago, like self-implanting a, an insulin meter into like the side of his belly so that he could track his glucose and insulin levels at any moment of the day and use that to hack how he was eating and how he was exercising. So he stayed in the optimum zone. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different turn of the screw. But maybe it's metaphysical because Sheldrake and Chopra already sacralized those terms, right? It's not like Ferris and all of these other guys have to come in and give spiritual import to this language that has already sort of been divorced from from its scientific discourse and made into a kind of poetry. In a way, in a way. I mean, the far end of the biohacking logical conclusion is is that you're going to live forever in some kind of transhumanist kind of technological utopia, right? The the far end cool. of the Sheldrake and, and, and uh, Chopra thing is that you're going to realize phenomenologically that you have always existed forever in a quantum superposition, right? So right. they've gone in different directions for sure. It's It's hard to... It, it would take some time for me to really parse out like how that all fits together. I do want to say that Tim Ferriss just learned the term conspirituality. He said he didn't know who came up with it or much about it, but he actually gives a really good story about his run-in with conspirituality and ayahuasca in Austin um, on his latest episode with Kevin Rose and someone pinged me about it. And so I listened to it. Um, so maybe now that he knows the term he has some language to understand some of the more egregious players around him in Austin, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to cover that. Um, We'll have to look into that. Right, right. The self-reflective moment. All right, so we're going to shift gears here into the mainstreaming of fascism, which is part of what's happening in our world of conspirituality. Not only this week, but I would say uh, it's it's been going on for a while, and it's there are some new manifestations uh, this week and certainly this year. Uh, I'm curious, you guys, how do you think the rise of conspirituality as a social movement, which we've been covering? rhymes with the rise of anti-democratic movements globally? Well, we know that our field of influencers have always tracked right, and it's partly because of the narcissism of consumerist 
yoga and wellness. It's partly because of the depoliticization of the demographic over decades. I think it's also a really easy uh, move from kissing the hem of the guru's robe to licking the boot of the demagogue. Um, there's also a kind of persistent anti-intellectualism that uh, creates uh, a demographic with really low cognitive defenses against bullshit. But your question actually makes me think of this uh, feature of fascism that was articulated by Umberto Eco in his uh, 14 Principles. He, he says that uh, fascism is a cult of action for action's sake. Quote, action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection, thinking as a form of emasculation. Wow. Unquote. So, in other words, just do it, mm-hmm. be in your body, surrender to the flow, the body knows, trust your intuition. Yeah, and it also, it's, to me, on a micro scale, it's the reason why Will Bunderfeld wouldn't be allowed into on it, because <laughs> it's a closed system, as much as yeah. they talk about being open and for everyone, it's actually a closed system and closed systems are usually read by people who are egomaniacs. And so egomania will always lead to some sort of authoritarianism when you're challenged. Uh, So on a micro scale, you see it. So it doesn't surprise that it would lead to um, having some sort of affection for people who do it on a macro scale. Yeah, and so part of what I hear you gesturing at is that it's probably not going to trend in the direction of the homoerotic, at least not overtly. No, no, right. no, def- yeah. definitely yeah. definitely not. As much as, again, they're for everyone. You know, I'm sure that people who are gay are allowed in those spaces. I, I do believe that. But there's, again, there's limits that will happen. And when you are breaking into the brand of the MMA guys who are all about the body and then you see that that penetrating <laughs> like their circle it's not it's just not going to happen yeah i mean it's it's really always been very telling to me uh the incredibly tiny number of um athletes pro athletes in the united states who've ever come out as gay i mean yeah. there's got and there's yeah. got to be so so many more so it's it is a, a very restrictive culture you know, one of the things that we've been observing, both as we keep tabs in our conspiritualists and then in the research that we've done for the book that we're referencing earlier, is that conspirituality actually leans toward being anti-democratic. I mean, just like MAGAs, conspiritualists will talk a lot about freedom and sovereignty and even awakening, but they actually support an epistemology and a spiritual and political style that quite simply is authoritarian. And what we've been reporting on is that increasingly that also includes rationalizing and even sanctifying violence. Yeah. You know, we all watched the right wing outcry a couple of weeks ago at Joe Biden's very direct speech about the danger that MAGA Republicans pose to American democracy. And that came after he had said in a different speech that under Trump, the GOP had become home to a semi-fascist philosophy. Divisive, they cried, offensive to half the country, authoritarian, they complained. And they circulated doctored images that made the guy they've repeatedly portrayed as a fragile and senile geriatric soy boy seem, in fact, like a terrifying dictator bathed in an ominous red glow and flanked by menacing Marines. It's like they really do seem to think that political critique comes down to theatrics and aesthetics. And, you know, these are the people who 
often decry the corrupting influence of postmodernism. But one of their go-to strategies is just making words mean whatever they want. Vaccines, authoritarian. Democratically elected party, totalitarian. Capital insurrectionists, protesters, or better yet, tourists. The guy under investigation for trying to undermine democracy in multiple illegal ways, well, he's the god emperor savior of the children. That same failed entrepreneur, fortunate son of wealth, he's the people's billionaire. Yeah, I mean, the irony here is that a good deal of postmodern theory actually emerged to account for this kind of thing, to account for what fascists can do and what they did do with language in the 30s, namely to empty it of definitional meaning to fill it with aggressive power. And that's why those 14 theses on fascism are so potent, because Echo studied it as a mode of like contradictory meaning breaking, that really the purpose of it is is really just to glorify the speaker. Now, a lot of the reaction from the right and from conspiritualists, as we'll discuss, boils down to saying that the term fascist is just a kind of an insult that lefties use for anyone who isn't woke enough or who uh, espouses, you know, family values. I, I, and I know that you hate that, Julian. You have this great tweet that's kind of sitting there, kind of forlorn on your timeline. It <laughs> says, fascism has a meaning. It's not just a left-wing slur. And it put me in mind of uh, the analysis that uh, Sartre gave of, of exactly just this, of, of the language issue. Um, back in 19, what well, must have been 46 or something like that, he writes, never believe that anti-Semites, he's talking about Nazis, of course, are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves for it is their adversary Julian, who is obliged mm -hmm. to use words responsibly. Since Julian believes in words, <laughs> the anti-Semites have the right to play. They even like to play with discourse, for by giving ridiculous reasons they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors, they delight in acting in bad faith, since they seek not to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and disconcert. And if you press them too closely, they will abruptly fall silent, loftily indicating by some phrase that the time for argument is passed. You know, I want to say that, that that tweet of mine that you're that you're reading this as as a response to came out of a previous Twitter exchange where someone where you know I, I basically said if it if it uh, walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, dear dear reader, the uh, the duck is a fascist, and you know listed all the different sort of qualifiers and and uh, talked about uh, Maloney, who I know we're, we're going to discuss in a minute. Um, and someone responded by saying, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a blue collar grunt, but it seems to me that everyone on the left is much more enamored of hurling insults and slurs than of actually criticizing people's policies, uh, which, you know, it, it exemplifies exactly what we're talking about. The thing is, I, I, I think that exchange actually makes uh, it very clear that we need almost two forms of discourse. Totally. Uh, it's it's like the, the amongst allies and 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 friends, we have to know what fascism means. We have to know what the theses are. We have to know what the descriptors are. But as a label, it doesn't really work anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't really suit. Like, um, you know, and I think a lot of liberals are walking around thinking that it would be mortifying to be called a fascist. Mm -hmm. 
But if you actually, you know, walk up to Georgia Maloney and you say, you're a fascist, she she says, fuck off, as we'll see, like Mm -hmm. lick my boots. Uh, (laughs) You're not going to define who I am. So it it almost seems like, um, you know, we have to be able to describe fascism as a predictable and definable political phenomenon. But then in relation to fascists in the public sphere, maybe we need to name the behaviors um, that it's not enough to just use the political label anymore. We have to be able to say, actually, that's a really self-centered and, you know, self-obsessed point of view. Uh, You are obsessed with your own family to the exclusion of everyone else. Um, Actually, your point of view is really Mm unchristian because I, you know, I think the, the label of fascism almost feels like an empty signifier at this point, Um, not internally amongst us. Uh, it, it also, you know, I'm reminded of this great piece by Adam Sewer in The Atlantic, uh, and he wrote a subsequent book of the same title called The Cruelty is the Point, um, where he, he stayed away from, from the political nomenclature altogether uh, and writes things like, the president's ability to execute that cruelty through word and deed makes them, his followers, euphoric. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel proud. It makes them feel happy. It makes them feel united. And as long as he makes them feel that way, they will let him get away with anything, no matter what it costs them. Right before this episode, I was reading this book on marketing and I came across this quote by Dale Carnegie. And you know, so often we see these things, like what you said, Julian, where one moment Biden is geriatric, portrayed by you know right-wingers, and then the next moment he's this terrifying dictator. And Carney's, Carnegie's quote was, when dealing with people, let us remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing with creatures of emotion. And it's such a basic, you know, it's, it's actually the like leading quote of this book. It's so basic and fundamental, but I think when you're so wrapped up in things like, oh, we're trying to save democracy, uh, you kind of forget that logic really doesn't play a role in any of this, which is kind of frightening. Yeah, one of Echo's thesis actually is that the enemy must be terribly strong and terribly weak at the same time. Mm. Uh, they have to they have to flip back and forth. Uh, they are dominating you, but they're also uh, disgusting worms who they're could vermin. possibly... They, yeah, they're vermin. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening to uh, Roger Griffin, who uh, I, I want to talk about his definition of fascism in a moment here, but I was listening to him a little earlier today, and he was talking about uh, Machiavelli. And he was quoting a passage in Machiavelli that talked about how to maintain power. And the, the, um, it's sort of an allegorical thing where he talks about be, being able to be the fox and the lion. And being the fox means that you're able to, to be wily and to see the snares and to avoid the snares. But the fox is not uh, scary enough to deal with the wolves from the other side. And so you need to be able to be the lion so as to scare away the wolves and to assert power. Uh, but the lion is not as as clever as the fox at avoiding avoiding the traps that the enemy will lay for you. So this ability to switch back and forth uh, between different ways of of portraying yourself, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, among allies and friends, perhaps we can look to someone like Roger Griffin, who defines fascism as palingenetic ultranationalism, which of course is a confusing yet impressive phrase I love to use. Uh, it makes more sense once you hear his three elements of fascism. The first is the myth of rebirth. So palingenesis is the capacity to be reborn or to be resurrected in some way. So the myth of rebirth, ultranationalism, and the myth of decadence. 
So we are a great people who have fallen due to corrupting influences from outsiders, immigrants, people who don't share our ethnicity and religion, decadent intellectuals, perhaps Jews, homosexuals. But we can have a glorious rebirth under the leadership of an unapologetically strong, patriotic chosen one. Why? We might even make our country great again. Yeah, and that brings us to Georgia Maloney, right? Uh and and we we bring her up because it took about what six hours or so for her to after she was declared the presumptive new prime minister of Italy uh, at the head of Fratelli d'Italia or the Brotherhood of Italy for the conspirituality world to start singing her praises. Uh, so we have reposts from uh, David Wolf, but then also Amber Sears uh, of a viral clip of a famous speech uh, in which she says, um, this is just sort of classic. I transcribed it from the, from the captions. Why is the family an enemy? I mean, let's start with a like a non sequitur to begin with. Like, <laughs> uh, anyway, why is the family? Why is the fa- or or a red herring? Why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? By the way, the only family in European in European media that's being depicted as being frightening or an enemy are the families of migrants that are actually mm-hmm. crawling onto shore uh, in the south, uh, trying to trying to flee uh, their desperate situations. So there's also something. It's not just a red herring. It's projective right off the top. Why is the family an enemy? Well, it's not that the family is an enemy. It's that they've been saying that certain families are enemies, but then they're sort of pretending. She's pretending that that it's being said about her. Yeah, it's like the it's like the war on. Christmas, essentially, right? <laughs> Incredible. Why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? There is a single answer to all these questions. She has it. Of you know. course. Because the family defines us, it is our identity. Because everything that defines us now is an enemy for those who would no longer like us to have an identity and to be perfect consumer slaves. And so they attack national identity. They attack religious identity. They attack gender identity. They attack family identity. I can't define myself as Italian, Christian, woman, mother. No, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number because when I am only a number, when I no longer have an identity or roots, then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators wrapping it all up with uh, anti-Semitic. Dun, 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 those financial yeah. speculators. Did Jordan Amazing. Peterson write that for her? Because that sounds <laughs> like his same sort of rhetoric. I also saw Jonathan Peugeot, who the Decoding the Guru guys have been yeah. analyzing and getting into it, the demon guy recently, uh, also reposted being like, how is this fascism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very beautiful. This is very beautiful. Well, and that illustrates the language problem that I brought up before. Yep. He says, he says, I'm told that this is fascistic, but I find this to be a beautiful speech. And then people are retorting in the in the replies. They're saying, well, that just that kind of means that you love fascism. And and but that doesn't really work. <laughs> uh, it doesn't it doesn't really um it doesn't it doesn't get to the it's like if if his tweet would have to be i'm told that this is cruel and dog whistly mm, mm. uh, but i find it to be beautiful now that's a different situation <laughs> um 
So anyway, that speech was in Italian, but here she is at CPAC in February in English. We live in a time in which everything we stand for is under attack. Our individual freedom is under attack. Our rights are under attack. The sovereignty of our nation is under attack. The prosperity and well-being of our families is under attack. The education of our children is under attack. In front of this, people understand that in this age, the only way of being rebels is to preserve what we are. The only way of being rebels is to be conservatives. We are... We are going to say it loud. We are not going to care about the labels they stick upon us. We are fed up of a left that presumes to lecture us even on what the right should be, what it should do, how it should behave, and even how it should define itself. The left would do better to try recovering, recovering its own identity. We on the right know exactly who we are and what we stand for. Yeah, who we are, what we stand for, anti-immigrant, homophobic, trans bigot. Uh, she believes that Christianity is persecuted. She was born in Rome, by the way, uh, home of the Vatican. Uh, her doctor isn't vaccinated. And if there's any you, doubt... You, you meant her daughter. You meant her daughter. <laughs> what did I say? Doctor. Doctor. Oh, her doctor. Who knows? Well, hold on. This, this was in... Florida too, right? That's where right. CPEC was back in February. Yeah. Uh, and if there's any doubt about where Fratelli d'Italia, this is Brothers of Italy, this is a phrase from the 1946 National Anthem, uh, where they are coming from a few weeks before the election, a party hack from Florence took a selfie video beside a Romani woman and literally said, vote for us if you don't want to see her again. Yeah. So, um, I think, I mean, Amberly Sears, she's, she's, she's listening to that speech and then she's posting, she is fire, full body chills, uh, when she speaks. And I think that with Maloney, you can really see that the girl boss life coaching soul certainty hacker types will be all over her. Um, and you've got to notice too how, she commands the framing. Uh, as we've been talking about, it's all about language, as in it doesn't matter what they label us uh, or if they call us fascists because I did things like, say, Mussolini did a great job when I was a teenager. We know who we are. Um, and then this other aspect is that she very she pulls off this very sort of trad, retro, Fellini-esque, I think, sex appeal uh, that dates back decades. Um, on election day, she posts a selfie clip where she's holding two melons in front of her breasts, which is a, this is a pun on her surname, Maloney. And she says, I've said everything I need to say. In other words, I think she's saying, it's time to fuck your queen, right? Like, just do it. Be in your body. Surrender to the flow. The body knows. There's no point in talking or thinking anymore. Just enjoy my juicy melons. Let's go. Uh, so I think this will also be gold for the anti-intellectual blood and soil crowd. She's also big into athletics, loves rugby, loves yoga. She has kind of a Marjorie Taylor Greene CrossFit like ass kicking vibe going on too. 
who's getting divorced, I might just add. And I don't really, I, I think divorce is, I hate it when I see it. Like, I don't gloat in anyone getting divorced. But when you're someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is on the trail every day talking about Christian family values, mm, right. and you can't keep your shit together, it's just more of that uh that contradictory nature of, of, of these people where they project so much out there and then they're a nightmare to deal with. At least that's what it seems to be. So I would, I would imagine it seems to be the case so far. You're saying you, do, you don't want to date Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because <laughs> she's, because she's free and open, right? I now. mean, she's if available. Single. She's speaking, right, right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't, there's not many CrossFit boxes up in Portland. So, you know. <laughs> So Meloni's win happens to coincide with the furthest right-wing party in Sweden this week, becoming the second largest party in their parliament. That party, which is called, perhaps confusingly, the Sweden Democrats, was started in 1998 with prominent members having been drawn from white nationalist and neo-Nazi organizations. I should say they do now publicly disavow those roots, but it's not really that unlike the origin story of Meloni's Brothers of Italy party, who are the de facto heir to Mussolini's banned national fascist party. Anyway, the Sweden Democrats are now poised to form a coalition government with the increasingly socially conservative Christian Democrat Party. And I just want to say again, this is Sweden. So the the far-right anti-LGBT China-allied Polish government has celebrated both the Italian and the Swedish results publicly, as have members of Viktor Orban's anti-gay, anti-democratic government in Hungary. Orban has made statements against race mixing. And in the past, uh, in his interviews, he also predicted that Italy was the country most likely within the EU to, to, to flip. Um, Maloney, for her part, has backed Orban on controversies over financial corruption and erosion of de- democracy with the EU. And let's not forget that Orban also spoke at CPAC's convention in Texas last month. And in May, CPAC actually held their conference in Orban's Hungary. Uh, This is the same Hungary that Tucker Carlson has traveled to to do admiring puff pieces on Orban's harsh anti-immigration policies. Look at how clean and orderly the borders are. Tucker, Maloney, and Orban have all recited screeds against George Soros, and they've all floated the racist and anti-Semitic great replacement conspiracy theory. And in turn, Orban and other international right-wing leaders have repurposed GOP anti-woke talking points, some of which you've already touched on a little bit, right? This is the sort of stuff that conspiritualists like J.P. Sears and propagandists like Matt Walsh post on the regular these days. So, for example, in 2021, Orban banned any references to LGBTQ topics in schools. But not only that, also any positive uh, depiction of LGBTQ characters in movies or books or advertising. And then during their version of the midterms this year, he included a referendum on LGBTQ issues in education. Now, in you've been following this for a while, uh, Julian. You've mm-hmm. got a bunch of past bonus episodes referencing uh, Steve Bannon and his affinity for Alexander Dugan. Um, 
you've tracked how you've been on this for a long time. You've tracked how Bannon has uh, worked on behalf of ultra white right wing parties around the world. Yeah. So he'll go and visit and campaign. He'll visit and campaign for these people. And then he will have a big conference like in Mayfair at a fancy hotel and draw together all of the far right leaders from around the world to discuss their strategy. Right. And it's all rooted in a grander vision inspired by Dugan and uh, Rene Ganon, as you've covered. And through this particular lineage, uh, the argument champions sovereign nations who are free to reject universal human rights along with Western-style democracy, uh, all in favor of aristocratic and monarchical hierarchies, spiritual case systems, uh, and the eventual return to the golden age. And of course, all of this roots back to somebody who's probably going to come out in the wash as figuring in Maloney's uh, intellectual history as well, uh, Julius Evola, uh, who whose work inspired Mussolini, of course, in the creation of fascism. Yeah, so I may sound, you know, when I get onto this uh, topic, a little bit like the corkboard guy. Yeah. Um, thanks thanks for that generous summary. Yeah, I mean, it's like Bannon is, uh, the, the, the number of links that Bannon has to all of these characters and how underneath all of it is this, Rene Guénon and Julia Savola traditionalist philosophy that that wants to take the world back into a kind of uh, spiritual hierarchy, monarchical, oppressive. Uh, our nation is free to reject human rights and democracy. That that is all really pretty terrifying. Um, this is happening all over the world: Brazil, the Philippines, and India as well. Not to mention places like Belarus, and of course Russia. Most of these leaders publicly embrace nativism. Alongside some form of fundamentalist religion, they use slogans that lean into the fascist link between God, the country, and the people. And and by the way, Giorgio Maloney describes herself as a defender of God, fatherland, and family. And I found this really interesting, Matthew, that, you know, she's leaning on fatherland. She named the party the Brothers of Italy, right? She's the one who said, we have to take the tricolor flame that that is that represents the flame that burns in Mussolini's tomb as as being part of our symbology uh and here she is the the first female pm of italy right mm-hmm. yeah yeah doing the work of the patriarchy right yeah amazing yeah and so perhaps she's the she's the uh the sexy mommy who's going to bring about the rebirth of the nation right right Now, the U.S., of course, is part of this picture. Uh, Next month, we have two episodes coming up on white Christian nationalism. This is a topic very much in the news stateside as well. Of late, we're going to talk to sociologists Philip Gorski and Matthew Perry about their book, The Cross and the Flag, as well as religious scholar Thomas Lecoq, who's the expert on the Crusades that I referred to several times in our Temple of the Gun episode back in June. Uh, in America, the synergy between far-right politics, gun culture, and Christian nationalism is running hot. In amongst their voluminous research, Gorski and Perry show that a majority of evangelicals rate the Second Amendment as even more important than freedom of religion or speech because they see all of our freedoms as flowing from the right to bear arms. Yeah, and that pretty much proves that the ideological ideology or or belief system is secondary to the will to power or force, doesn't it? I mean, Absolutely. the guns right at top, right? Yeah, yeah, they've turned a corner. Where uh, what's the most important is that we have enough guns to impose our beliefs on the rest of the country. Right. It turns out seventy eight percent of evangelicals are in favor of officially declaring America a Christian nation. 
And so many people will have seen that recently Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and the less high profile Mary Miller, who's from Illinois, have expressed open support for Christian nationalism and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis will use Christian nationalist imagery, putting on the armor of God, for example, and talking points in his speeches. Now, this is the same Ron DeSantis, of course, whom Joe Rogan has opined on his podcast would make a great president. Oh, he was just shooting the shit though, right? Like he's Yeah, just I mean, he's an right. idiot. You shouldn't listen to him. Right. Right. Bobert has publicly said that she's opposed to the separation of church and state. Green told the young audience at Turning Point USA conference that they should call themselves Christian nationalists. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And then afterwards, she tweeted that she was being attacked for this by the godless left. We've known uh, for a long time that the, the GOP shifted their strategy after the administration of born-again evangelical Democrat Jimmy Carter by very effectively positioning themselves as the pro-Christianity family values party. But a lot of people don't know there's a newly ascendant religious ideology on the right. It's called the Seven Mountain Mandate. This is based on a series of workshops and trainings, first offered in 2000, which uh, were created as a self-described template for warfare. And the originator of this work is a business consultant named Lance Wallnow, who, I kid you not, has a doctorate in ministry with a specialization in marketplace awesome. from, the, from the Phoenix University of Theology, which on further research is just what it sounds like. It's located in a rented corporate office space, and it fits the federal definition of a diploma mill. In other words, this preacher has a dodgy PhD in how to sell religious ideology to the masses. He turned his ideas into a book in 2013, and it lays out his form of Christian dominionism that claims a divine mandate to gain control over the seven key areas or mountains of society, family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. And on this view, only when they have secured control over the earth in these ways will God be well-pleased. Oh, and of course, by fulfilling his mandate, these good Christians can then achieve their ultimate goal— to bring about the end times. So I talked about all of this during my TikTok cults and conspiracies episode. People can go back and have a look because a different pastor, Robert Shin, is accused of running an exploitive cult of high profile young TikTok dancers who've appeared on TV shows and commercials and danced in NBA halftime shows. This guy is apparently indoctrinating them into this ideology and then framing their success as part of this Christian dominionist seven mountain mandate vision. He calls his production company 7M, while of course also allegedly controlling their lives and stealing all their money. I hope they can get away and just dance and make money. They're really yeah. good dancers, my God. Yeah, they're fantastic. That's definitely a story we're following as it unfolds. Now, in addition to Bobert and Green, there's another new congresswoman in town who's made similar comments. This is Republican Myra Flores. And she actually just made history three months ago by becoming the, the country's first, actually, uh, yeah, the country's first Mexican-born woman elected to Congress in a district that had for 150 years in Texas been a Democrat stronghold. It's going to be an issue for Democrats. She's a former Obama voter, but she's part of an emerging wave of conservative Latinas who are pointing out that Mexican-Americans have traditionally voted against their conservative Christian values that are actually more aligned with the GOP. Uh, Flores also told a, an MSNBC interviewer that she supports Christian nationalism and ran in a special election that she won under the slogan, God, country, and family. 
And for that campaign, she also enlisted the support of her pastor's movement, which is called Make America Godly Again. But Julian, do they really mean it? Do they really <laughs> know what they're talking about? Do they, do, they, do they understand the history? This is the problem, right? It's pretty low-hanging fruit to take a look at Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, perhaps even Myra Flores, and say, you know, they're just not that sophisticated, and neither are their followers. They may not know the history or the politics in the broader sense. They, they, they maybe don't know that America was founded explicitly on the principle of there being no official state religion. And when they right. say that to them, Christian nationalism just means being a good Christian and loving America, we can almost take them at their word. Yeah, why not? You know, but there's something here that right-wing populism and its fascist tendencies actually has in common, as I think about it, with the more familiar spiritual cults that we've encountered over the years. You know, when they're successful, both of these will rely on nurturing a very large outer circle of supporters who buy into their more idealistic, benign, appealing messaging and marketing. So, you know, in the past, Matthew, when you and I have tried to talk to yoga people about how certain high profile gurus are actually just figureheads for exploitive and abusive cults, they'll often either say, well, you know, unless you've been in their presence and directly experienced their divinity and love, you're not really qualified to offer your opinion. Or they'll say that you don't have to be in their presence and directly experience their divinity and love. You can just encounter the general beneficence of their content out in the world, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's put out there too. It's, yeah. it's available. It's freely available. You know what Osho teaches. You yes. know the books of, of Trungpa, right? Totally. So the content yeah. is out there. And then what's also out there with some of these really well-established, super lucrative organizations around gurus is they usually have some kind of philanthropic project that they're very public about where they're supposedly using lots of money to help people. And, and very often those are, are debunked and shown to be completely false. They'll also say, right. you know, when you listen to the guru, they don't say any of these cultish things. They just talk about finding freedom from the suffering of the ego uh, and, and that you should think for yourself and trust your right. intuition, be a lamp unto yourself. So, so how dare you call this a cult? And in the same way, we see that many on the right will re react to the terms fascist or far right as merely being slanderous uh, and, and slurs against people who just want to stand up for Judeo-Christian values and the sanctity of the family and marriage. And, and after all, they, they're just trying to stop their home country and its traditions from being degraded and turned into shit, right? Yeah, it's really difficult to, with populism or faux populism, to actually narrow down and say, this is what the influencer or the politician is actually saying, this is where they come from. Because there is this kind of like fog of beneficence uh, that surrounds them and, and ripples out through these, through these layers of marketing. But on the note of degrading home country and tradition, well, it's happening here in Canada. Uh, no. Well. Yes. Um, and neo-fascists who are seeking the limelight are trying uh, something akin to what Georgia Maloney is trying. Uh, a little bit more nerdy, though. Um, thank so God, here, thank God. So here we are introducing Pierre Poiliev. Look at these scars. Each one of them represents the swing of an axe by a logger converted by hand logs into posts and beams that became the bones of barns that dotted the countryside of Canada for 
hundreds of years. This post and these boards were probably on a barn for centuries. I picked them up from a local farmer. Ten bucks a board, fifty bucks a post. I had to clean them by hand. You know, scrape off all the shit and mud and debris in order to bring out this beautiful honeycombed exterior that you see now. But it, it made me think: Why did it, did I go through so much trouble when I could have simply gone to a hardware store and picked up some boards that I could have painted whatever color I wanted? They would have been planed and perfectly cut, rather than jagged and out of line like this wood behind me. Why is it that so many coffee shops and restaurants go through the same trouble that I did? I think it's because these boards have a story. Not only the hard work of the men and women who built these barns, but also the way that nature, through wind, sun, rain, sleet, painted this beautiful patina on the outside of them. And what I'm doing, and what all of us do. When we bring these boards into our house, is we are reclaiming something that was already there.、And、that's what my campaign is about. It's not about inventing some brand new utopia out of scratch. It's about reclaiming the freedom that is our natural right. Yeah, it goes on and on, and、um, it's interesting stuff. I'm lining up a full episode on Polyev soon, so this is just a preview. By the way, the visuals here is that he's in his kind of、uh, suburban McMansion, where he's used reclaimed barn boards to decorate around his gas fireplace.、Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, but this is the guy who just won the CPC leadership、uh, federally by a landslide over center right other center right candidates,、uh, including. A real、uh, veteran named Jean Charest.、Uh, he's just a total shitgibbon of faux populism. This means he's now he's now the leader of the opposition in Canada. He's leader of the opposition in Canada. Yeah, yeah right. And、uh, faux populist,、uh, corporatist, anti labor record going back into his twenties.、Uh, pretends to care about working people. He has no idea who they are.、Uh, he's been the attack dog of some of the most regressive Tory governments in recent memory. He's also the most prominent politician to have met with the so-called Freedom Convoy.、Uh, we did that episode with Liz Simons、uh, a while back. He was the one who was glad-handing、uh, all of the white supremacists who are now going to jail. So in this in this promo, he hits all of the soft fascism notes like a like a one man one man boy band,、mm-hmm. and he also does something here that I haven't seen before, which is he's invoking a white Canadian originalism. Uh, through the symbology of suburban renovation, he's talking about old stock laborers and antique wood,、uh, but he's really talking about an imagined authenticity nourished by blood and soil.、Um, w- one commenter dubbed him、uh, an alt-right Bob Villa.、Um, in-, in other words, his message is to white male Canada. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing to change. There's no reason for shame. No point in curbing your appetites or changing your ways. Things were perfect before the state tried to shame you.、Uh, your identity is as noble as a finely 
built barn. You couldn't possibly get sick through natural processes because you are naturally immune. Uh, and you can only you lose your authenticity to those who pretend to be able to change what is already perfect. Uh, and I, I have to say, I don't know how it's going to play out here, but you can tell that he's taking notes from his favorite Canadian influencer, who is Jordan Peterson. Um, I think when I do the extended episode on him, I'll probably cover his extended interview with Peterson. He's folksy. Uh, uh, the, the interview that they have is, is flattering. It's pseudo-spiritual. It leans into the Canadian rights crush on the United States. Um, you know, the, the notion of, of freedom and the Republican notion that he's running for PM. He's not talking, he never talks about running for the leader leadership of his party. He talks about running for prime minister, which is very weird in a parliamentary system. Uh, but he also keeps all of the aggression, as you can tell, uh, clenched up in a polite little Canadian sphincter. Uh, and uh, you know, he is not going to feel comfortable on the same stage with Georgia Maloney, and it'll be very interesting to mm. see, you know, how how they how they get on. I think all Qualiev needs, actually, for the extra boost, uh, is for Will Blunderfield to come and, and rub his balls on those planks. <laughs> um, maybe they can do a, a midnight ejaculation ritual to bring out the patina. Oh God. This is an awful image. Um, thanks, everyone. If you if you made it uh, to that last piece of poetry from Matthew, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.